Hey everyone, it's Thursday, January 4th, 1424. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. (laughs) I'm Mo Shmanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts and the dates numerically, it appears. (laughs) Apparently in the new year, that's where I'm going. It's also the place where we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, how you doing? I'm doing okay, reconsidering any plans I had to retire anytime soon, given uh, some new numbers that you just reported on. Yeah, there's a study that came out uh, in the last few days about how far a million dollars in retirement takes you. This analysis getting some circulation. They did 50 state breakdown where a million dollars will get you the longest retirement or the shortest retirement. The assumption here is that you retire at 65, that the average retirement lasts 25 years. Uh, The headline number is a million dollars ain't going to last you 25 years anywhere where it'll take you the longest, Mississippi, 22 years, where a million dollars will run out the quickest, Hawaii, 10 years. And that 65 number isn't even realistic either. <laughs> Let's None be honest. It's realistic. <laughs> Actually, we heard from a Mo News uh, community member on Instagram who's like, I'm a retirement actuary. <laughs> I looked at this analysis. It's, you know, BS. Like, it assumes it's all in cash. It doesn't take into all the things into account that we would normally take. <laughs> uh, and I was like, wait, so what is your, like, bottom line for a million dollars? And they're like, well, actually... It's probably going to run out even quicker in some places <laughs> than this analysis. So definitely don't retire in Maui unless you have many, many millions of dollars, it appears. Jill, I know you were uh, testing out uh, Del Boca Vista uh, in Florida over the holidays. Are you Florida bound at some point? I'm all in on Del Boca Vista. I, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love the weather. <laughs> uh, I just don't know if I can convince the rest of the the clan to go down there. And I'm such a family person. I live so close mm. to my parents, my in-laws, my brother. My To me, it's very important to be around family. And at this point, uh, that means we are stuck on Long Island. Yeah. And uh, depending on how this Nor'easter goes this weekend, you could be really stuck on Long Island. <laughs> True. For a bit. Literally and figuratively stuck on Long Island. With that, Mosh, let's get to some headlines here. House Republicans head to the southern border to try to pressure Democrats to crack down on illegal immigration where things stand on a potential deal. Overseas, more than 100 people were killed in Iran with two bombs detonating at an event marking the four year anniversary of a general's death. But who is behind it? Back here in the U.S., the national debt hits a record $34 trillion. Bomb threats hit a bunch of state capitals. In tech news, Samsung hoping that AI in its newest phones will help it chip away at iPhone sales. Yeah, but did the text messages still show up green, Jill, (laughs) on people's iPhones? That is the big question. Come on, AI, you can fix it. Meanwhile, NBC has tapped none other than Snoop Dogg for its primetime Paris Olympics show. Stay tuned for the speed read. I'll play a clip of one of my favorite Snoop Dogg segments from the Tokyo Games. And Moshe Page from our youth, a 13-year-old boy, is believed to be the first person to ever beat Tetris. Alpha generation going to places millennials and Gen Xers never did, apparently. And Moshe is on this day in history. Jill, some classic music headlines, a little uh, currency news, and Hot Wheels celebrates a birthday. All right, let's start with politics and the battle over the southern border. Some House Republicans headed south to the border on Wednesday as a record number of migrants have been flowing into the United States. 
Some in the GOP are now threatening to block government funding if President Biden and Democrats fail to do something about the border crisis. In an interview with CNN, new House Speaker Mike Johnson saying it is not about money and not about more border agents. He says that the Biden administration needs to basically turn off the faucet, meaning figure out a way to cut the number of migrants who are headed to the border in the first place. Johnson led a visit by more than 60 House Republicans to Eagle Pass, Texas, to put pressure on the president and Democrats to agree to strict new immigration policies. One congressman, Andy Biggs, telling reporters, quote, shut the border down or shut the government down. And most not news to anyone who has been listening to this podcast, the federal government is close to another budget deadline later this month, which means we could be close to a government shutdown. Yeah, we've been doing this podcast for almost two years now, Jill, and we've had a number of these near threats, these uh, near shutdowns. They keep kicking the can down the road. They kicked it down the road in the fall to January. That seemed pretty far away until we're now in January. Um, And that's one of the issues Republicans uh, and Democrats will have to find an agreement on this month So uh, a number of these House Republicans are pushing Biden right now to reinstitute policies that were in place under former President Trump, like keeping migrants in Mexico until their day in immigration court. Uh, In many cases, what you see on the U.S. border is uh, folks will be given a court date and then allowed to basically enter the U.S. with a uh, court date in mind that could be months or years in the future. Now, uh, with this standoff right now and these threats from a couple of the Republicans about shutting down the government uh, until there's a crackdown on the border, there's been a deal that's being negotiated for a number of weeks here. Uh, they ended up hitting the holidays without a deal. So that was kicked into 2024. Uh, it includes more than $100 billion, including money for Ukraine, uh, the majority of it actually for Ukraine, then also money for Israel, money for Taiwan, and uh, $14 billion plus to deal with the U.S.-Mexico border. But Republicans and Democrats were not able to strike a deal there, at least before the break. The talks continued again this week. Uh, The White House saying that the uh, ball is in Republicans' court here, that they've made a number of offers, that Biden is uh, trying to be as amenable as possible on uh, border changes, asylum changes, uh, money for the border, etc. But for a number of Republicans, it's still not enough here. One of the big issues is asylum seekers. So these are people coming from countries where they have legitimate grievances or fear going back, the Venezuelas, the Cubas, the Haitis, Nicaragua, etc. And uh, Republicans are trying to push for the U.S. to make it more difficult for migrants seeking to claim asylum uh, from staying within the U.S. Uh, obviously, there are various international laws here, the Geneva Conventions, etc., that we need to follow here. But the numbers here are just incredibly large, and they have not figured out a way to stem the flow here coming off of, as we told you yesterday on the podcast, more than 300,000 encounters in December alone. That is a new record. That breaks the last biggest record, which was September, which was more than 250,000. We used to have once in a great while, after every number of years, a month with more than 200,000, and now we're seeing it on the regular. The Border Patrol is overwhelmed. And even Democrats here recognize that this is a crisis, that they can't ignore it or dismiss it. Uh, The question is, uh, what can be done after more than nearly two decades now of no major immigration deal? Some of us are old enough to remember that George W. Bush came in in the early 2000s actually looking for a a immigration compromise, uh, a position that today would be deemed a soft Democratic position, even though he was a Republican, former governor of Texas. Um, Things have moved to the right. Everyone's moved to the right here. The crisis has grown larger, especially with the instability in Central and Latin America. And so here we stand. 
Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, House Republicans moving ahead with their effort to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The House Homeland Security Committee expected to hold its first hearing on January 10th. So that committee did a year-long probe into Mayorkas, and they're trying to impeach him. They say for his handling and his role in, quote, the unprecedented crisis at the southwest border, The hearing is called Havoc in the Heartland, How Secretary Mayorkas' Failed Leadership Has Impacted the States. And it's going to look at how states have been impacted by the growing influx of immigrants at the southern border. If this actually happened and he is impeached, he would be the first cabinet secretary to be impeached since 1876. So the Department of Homeland Security is responding here, arguing that House Republicans are, quote, pursuing a baseless political exercise that has been rejected by members of both parties and already failed on a bipartisan vote. They're noting that they actually tried to do this earlier in the fall. They couldn't get the votes. Keep in mind right now, Republicans with a few of the departures, including Kevin McCarthy, only have a two-seat majority. Uh, That is until the special election in your district, Jill, uh, to replace George Santos. And of course, a Democrat could be elected um, there. As far as impeachment is concerned, a reminder here, impeachment works for cabinet secretaries the same way it works for presidents. The House even if it impeaches, the impeachment then goes to the Senate for conviction. A reminder, the Senate has a Democratic majority. You also would need two thirds. Uh, so you need a third of Democrats in the Senate to agree with Republicans to remove a uh, Democratic president's secretary of Homeland Security. So conviction ain't happening here. But Republicans have a long list of folks they would like to impeach in the House. Uh, that includes Mayorkas. It also includes Joe Biden, among other folks. Uh, but the immigration issue continues to be significant. Jill, late on Wednesday, there's more of a legal back and forth between the federal government and Texas. The Justice Department officially is now suing Texas over its new law that would allow police to arrest migrants. Texas made illegally crossing the border a state penalty with a new law. Of course, immigration controlling the border belongs to the federal government, not state governments. So uh, you can see you know, this going up to the Supreme Court. In all likelihood, the president right now stands with the federal government. Uh, We will see, though, how the various courts going up the chain here will rule. But, you know, Texas is saying, listen, you guys aren't doing enough. We need to intervene here and we got to pass our own laws. Texas has, by the way, sent nearly 100,000 of the migrants uh, that have come into the state northbound. And so that's led to fights with the mayor of Chicago, the mayor of New York, the mayor of D.C., because Texas is all like, you guys are sanctuary cities. You want to you know, help these people. We're overwhelmed. And these cities are like, no, 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 no. You're overwhelming us now. <laughs> and so you're seeing seeing a lot of issues, a multi-front battle here. And that uh, lawsuit from the federal government, uh, just the latest front here. Yeah. And a lot of these cities run by Democrats. Uh, obviously, Mayor Adams has been really critical of the federal government. I was listening to an interview this week with Mark Levine. He is the borough president in Manhattan. He is a very liberal Democrat. And even he said, look, we need help from the federal government. He said open arms to these migrants, but we need help. It's extremely expensive to house them and feed them. And he said in terms of what the Texas governor is doing just this week at at 3 a.m., a busload of migrants came to midtown Manhattan and then the city has to figure out how to house them, where to put them. Uh, So it's a a logistical nightmare, as he said. Yeah, you have Democrats saying, you know, there's no coordination here. This is totally unfair. And the governor of Texas says, welcome to our world. This is what we're dealing with on our border. We don't tell um, folks when to cross the border and then we have to find them housing. So, you know, while this has been called a stunt, 
what Texas is doing, et cetera, some would say, conservatives would say, a successful stunt, because now they feel like, well, see, see what we're dealing with? Do you guys understand this now? Welcome to the party, uh, so to speak. So, uh, you know, clearly here, you're starting to, you know, if we did a blind test for folks, where you put a quote about the immigration crisis, and then didn't put the name and said, is this a quote from a Republican or Democrat, you would be surprised, or maybe not surprised anymore, be like, oh my God, that was a Democrat who said that? That's a Democrat who said that? Because you're, you're seeing these big city mayors start to talk like the border state uh, Republican governors and senators. One quick anecdote about how this is actually playing out on the ground. Uh, one of my good friends is a teacher in the New York City public school system, and she has a lot of kids in her class, including a new migrant, somebody who just arrived here in the United States who does not speak English. And my friend does not speak Spanish, uh, at least fluently to be able to communicate with her. So I said, you know, how does it work? What do you do? How do you even handle it? And she said, I, I basically just do Google Translate, you know, in the middle of class. And she said it is. It's really time consuming. So that's how much less time is she able to spend than with the other students. So she's like, look, I figure it out. I, I do it. You know, it, I make it work because I've been doing this for a while. But it's just an example of how this is playing out uh, in a very real way and having very real impacts in cities across the country. Yeah. And what we're seeing here are the you know ramifications of a, a number of failed states or failing states south of the border. And so people are coming here for a better life. Uh, they hear through the grapevine that they can get through. Uh, they're either paying someone to help them get through or they're just showing up at the border saying, I'd like to claim asylum. It's too dangerous to live where I'm living. And then, you know, the U.S. government is trying to figure out its policy here on the fly as they're dealing with a, a crisis that we have not seen, at least in modern history, on the U.S. southern border. So this is a story we'll continue to monitor closely here. And we have more uh, in today's newsletter. All right, let's head overseas in the Middle East. Renewed concerns about a larger regional war in Iran, more than 100 people were killed and more than 100 injured Wednesday in two blasts that struck the central Iranian city of Kerman. It happened as thousands were gathering to commemorate the death of General Qasem Soleimani. Wednesday marked the fourth anniversary of his assassination by a U.S. drone strike back in 2020. Iranian officials had called the deadly blasts at the ceremony yesterday Quote, a terrorist attack. The explosions occurred about a half a mile from Soleimani's burial place on a road to the graveyard and about 20 minutes apart. So the first bomb was said to be in a suitcase and, and detonated remotely. The second went off a bit later, meant to injure people who were going to help the victims of the first. So the big question right now as we're watching the whole tense situation across the region is who could be behind it? The Supreme Leader of the Ayatollah said those behind the attacks should know that this tragedy will have a tough response. The Iranian president vowing to pursue and identify the planners and perpetrators of this terrorist act. Uh, though they did not blame a specific group or country, uh, Soleimani's successor, the general who succeeded him, did say that they won't let this deter them from uprooting the Zionist regime. They don't use the word Israel. They call it the Zionist regime. He was the first to try to lay blame on this, though we should note, based on the modus operandi here, the MO of the attack, uh, this is much more likely uh, an internal group in Iran. Uh, the U.S. and Israel typically are very targeted in hitting generals or nuclear scientists related to the nuclear program there in Iran and not these types of civilian targeted explosions. The more likely culprit here, groups like ISIS, which is a Sunni group. A reminder, Iran is Shiite, 
You also have a lot of anti-government groups. Uh, there's been a number of Kurdish groups through the years that have been fighting the Iranian government. Uh, here, they're trying to you know, make clear that the Iranian government doesn't have full control over the government. And so they couldn't get to the leaders, but they were able to target civilians here. Um, so while uh, the headlines struck a number of us who woke up on Wednesday morning being like, oh God, you know, things are getting bigger or worse, Again, you know, even the Iranians, despite what you might see publicly, will, you know, know the truth here based on the on the MO. Clearly something internal. Iran has faced these types of attacks in the past. Uh, recently in 2017, there was an attack in Tehran by an ISIS group uh, targeting the parliament building there. They killed more than a dozen folks. So these types of attacks targeting, you know, mass population in Iran. Again, the work of these smaller groups, but with things very tense and a lot of finger pointing happening, this is where you start to get concerned that uh, regardless of who might be the culprit of a specific attack, when things are tense, things might escalate with unrelated groups. Meanwhile, we're tracking the fallout in Lebanon. That is where the Israelis have effectively taken responsibility for the assassination of the deputy political leader of Hamas, Saleh al-Aruri. In a televised speech in Beirut, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah vowed that his powerful Iran-backed Shiite terror group, quote, cannot be silent in the wake of Aruri's killing, which he called a major dangerous crime. However, he made no concrete threats of action against Israel. Yeah, so sort of a wah-wah from Nasrallah. You know, Hamas for a while now has been hoping that Hezbollah and Iran would really back them up in the war in Gaza. You know, they'll send a few rockets uh, and mortars across the border, not insignificant, but certainly not as significant as they're capable of. Uh, And this assassination, at least it looks right now, like Hezbollah will sort of sit on his hands here and and do something small, but nothing significant. And Jill, you know, we we made a point of saying the Israelis have effectively taken responsibility because you continue to see the Israelis here kind of dance around, not with an official statement saying it was us, but sort of wink, wink, it was us taking out this uh, top Hamas guy. It kind of reminds me of um, the O.J. Simpson book, like, If I Did It. it, it that's... <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> was what you had, it was Netanyahu's deputy basically being like, I don't know who did it, but whoever did, they were just targeting Hamas. They were not targeting Hezbollah. Yeah, no. And for those unfamiliar, OJ, after he was found not guilty of the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, uh, years later, got paid a whole bunch of money to write a book. What would it have been like if he committed the crime? And people are like, I I can't believe he's doing this, um, given how most people feel about who's to blame there uh, and uh, OJ's guilt. And sort of the Israelis here is, uh, you know, if we did it, this is why we would have done it. And this is who we would have targeted. Um, Jill, notably, as we talk about these groups, Hamas and Hezbollah operating in Lebanon, we got a few questions over on the Instagram account. Why does Lebanon let these groups operate within its orbit? Is that like a militia group operating in the U.S.? And you got to think about the different context here. Yes, it would be like if the Republican Party and Democratic Party each had their own militias and would independently launch rockets on Canada or Mexico with their own disputes. Lebanon is a very complicated country as it was created about 100 years ago. You know, you basically took three minority groups and put them together. You had the Sunni Muslims, the Shiites and the Maronite Christians. And they literally built a government where one of each of those religions would hold a, a key role, president, prime minister and uh, head of parliament. 
And so it's always been very complicated. There's never been a strong central state in Lebanon. So there's no like U.S. military equivalent in Lebanon. They have a Lebanese military, but it's never been that powerful. So they've allowed these individual sects to have their own militia groups. And the unfortunate thing without a strong central government in Lebanon is you've had a lot of people take advantage of that through the years, the Syrians, the Iranians, the Palestinians, the Israelis. And so uh, the unfortunate thing for Lebanon, a beautiful country that was once called the Paris of the Middle East, um, they've now experienced more than four decades of civil war due to all of these groups. And so today, if you look at it, Hezbollah is actually much more powerful and probably has much more significant weaponry than the Lebanese military. So they effectively, you know, there are parts of Lebanon controlled by Hezbollah, controlled by parts of Hamas, Hamas, which hangs out in the Hezbollah controlled parts of Lebanon. And so it's a it's a very complicated situation. But at this point in history, the Lebanese central government, which is sort of sort of collapsed, a lot of infighting, a lot of problems there. There's not much they can do about the fact that all these other groups operate within the country. All right, we have a lot more to get to in today's podcast. But first, let's thank our sponsor this week, Athletic Greens. If you've been listening for a while, you know we've been partnering with them for a very long time, going back to 2022, Jill, uh, and 2023. So we start a third year here with our friends at AG1. We both started drinking their AG1 supplement a while back. And as all of us make our New Year's resolutions, we're all looking for energy, uh, all looking to get our nutrition and our uh, vitamins in the new year. No better place to turn than AG1. It's just a small scoop in water in the morning. It's quick. It's easy. It lets you get on with your day knowing that you're getting more than 70 important vitamins that support health, support gut optimization, stress management, immune support, um, all the important things. I've heard from a bunch of you that you started taking it and are enjoying it uh, and feeling renewed energy from taking AG1. And what's great is AG1 is partnering with us here at Mo News with a special deal. When you try AG1 with the Mo News code, you get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. Head over to drinkag1.com slash Mo News. Again, that is drinkag1.com slash Mo News. Check it out and really take ownership of your health in 2024. Okay, time now for the speed read from the Washington Post. The U.S. national debt has surpassed $34 trillion for the first time. That is according to the Treasury Department. And it comes as persistently large annual budget deficits continue to add to that federal tab. Roughly three months after the debt first hit $33 trillion, the new milestone comes as lawmakers brace for fiscal showdowns over spending levels in the coming weeks. Government borrowing costs have increased because of the Federal Reserve's campaign to raise interest rates. Spending has remained above pre-COVID levels and tax revenue dropped last year, all worsening the nation's fiscal outlook. When it comes to that lower tax revenue, President Biden has blamed Republican tax cuts for adding trillions to the deficit. Meanwhile, congressional Republicans blame spending measures passed under Biden and other Democrats. The bottom line, less money is coming into the federal government while more money is going out. <laughs> that's that's the bottom line when it comes to debt. You don't have enough to pay for it and you keep borrowing. The interest rate hikes, Jill, by the way, significant uh, because as the government takes out more debt, the government will have to pay more interest. And that's something that worries some economists. Uh, Jill, looking back here, we posted a chart over on the Instagram account. We passed a trillion in debt back in the early Reagan years, back in the early 80s. And for about 20 years there, it went between 1 trillion up to about 4 trillion. After 9-11, things really escalate. The past 20 years, we went from about 4 trillion to, as you know today, 34 trillion. So about 30 trillion in just over 20 years. 
And, you know, you got the war spending, 9-11, the 2008 recession, uh, the Bush tax cuts, the Trump tax cuts, followed by COVID, which has put together that 30 trillion. So the debt went up about 6 trillion during Bush, 8 trillion during Obama, 8 trillion during just the four years of Trump, and now about 6 trillion during the first three years of Biden here. Um, so significant, especially as some economists say, if this is our problem in good times, if this is our debt in good times, like what happens when the bad times come in uh, and how far in the hole will we get ourselves? So you have economists who argue that this is a threat to our overall fiscal health. You have others who say the government continues to have a lot of capacity to borrow. The U.S. economy is strong. Keep in mind that the federal government brings in between six and seven trillion annually in tax revenue and other receipts. And we're 34 trillion in debt. So conceivably, if the U.S. had to pay off its debt, it could do so over a few years here. Keep in mind, like, think about it on the individual level. You have student loans, you have car loans, you might have a mortgage. Uh, look at your annual income and then look at your debts, right? You can have five to 20 times the debt of your annual income, but you're good for it, right? You're gonna pay that back. The government here, if you just do some rough math, is six times in debt compared to what it brings in. Now to the debate you're getting at, Democrats say, we got to give more money to the IRS. They got to crack down all the tax fraud out there. And these permanent Trump tax cuts, these permanent Bush tax cuts uh, for the rich, we got to uh, reverse them. And by bringing in more money, we can pay down the debt. The Republicans are like, no, 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 no. Keep the tax cuts, but let's spend less. The problem when it comes to spending, where are you going to spend less? Nobody wants to touch the military. That's bad politics. Social Security, Medicare, can't touch those. So of the six or seven or eight trillion we're spending every year, nearly half of it you can't touch, probably almost two thirds of it at this point. So where are you going to cut? You're going to cut from education, you could cut from the border? No, they want to spend more on the border, etc. So you look around and you find it's difficult to find places to cut, which is the democratic argument. So, you know, let's see where this stands. For the most part, the markets were like, wah, we're okay. We think the American economy is okay. We're not that worried about this debt figure yet. Uh, and so the economy keeps roaring here, the market keeps doing well. Uh, but this is a number that we got to keep watching. For Axios, Capitol buildings in at least nine states were put on lockdown or forced to evacuate today after receiving bomb threats. Threats against public officials at various levels of government have surged in recent years. Bomb threats were sent out in a mass email to multiple secretaries of state and legislative offices around the country. Yeah, I mean, this was from Connecticut and Georgia and Maine, all the way through Michigan and Minnesota, down to Mississippi, all the way to Hawaii. You saw these threats. It also comes as we saw a whole bunch of swatting calls targeting senators and members of Congress over the holidays. A reminder, swatting calls are where people try to call and get SWAT teams uh, deployed to, you know, celebrities have experienced this. And in this case, a number of elected officials experienced this where there's no need for the SWAT team, but you get swatted nonetheless, and it creates a big headache. Uh, and at times, a dangerous situation. From CBS News, a New Jersey Muslim imam was fatally shot Wednesday morning outside of a mosque in Newark. Police say that the imam, Hassan Sharif, was rushed to the hospital where he was initially listed in critical condition, but he did ultimately succumb to his injuries. That shooting was reported shortly after 6.15 in the morning, right outside of the mosque, as the first of five daily prayers was set to take place. So as of late Wednesday, there's no word on a suspect or motive in the shooting. Uh, obviously, everyone's on high alert now, uh, given what's transpiring in the Middle East. The New Jersey Attorney General saying Wednesday, still don't know the motivation, not at liberty to discuss the investigation. But as of late Wednesday, no indication that it was uh, racially charged or religious hate crime here. 
or an act of domestic terrorism. Uh, that said, the governor, other officials say they're going to continue to investigate what took place here in Newark, uh, in nearby Long Island and Nassau County. Authorities are increasing patrols at mosques. Now to some tech news from CNBC. Samsung to announce new phones powered by AI on January 17th. Samsung is Apple's largest smartphone competitor. The company has a 20% share of the global smartphone market compared to Apple's 16% share. Here in the U.S., though, Samsung has a 25% share of the phone market behind Apple's 53% share. These new features that are not available on the iPhone could help Samsung attract more customers. Samsung saying this week that its latest devices will offer an all-new mobile experience powered by AI. It is unclear what that means, but recent announcements from chipmakers like Qualcomm and competitors like Google could provide some context. Samsung is usually among the first phone makers to use Qualcomm's latest chips, Qualcomm said in October that its new Snapdragon chips will allow phones to run generative artificial intelligence applications directly on the phone. It allows for smaller versions of apps like ChatGPT to run without an internet connection. Oh, very cool. So we'll, we'll have to wait two weeks here till January 17th, as you know, to Jill, to figure out exactly what Samsung is promising. You know, oftentimes we'll talk about these Apple updates and we'll get excited and the Samsung people will be like, Dude, we had that years ago, and it appears this is another case where Android users will get a head start here uh, when it comes to AI. Qualcomm has demonstrated how its chips could be used to generate images based on a string of words. So, for example, you might type, create an image that shows a man driving a car, and it'll generate a picture. So you can have some fun in text messages with friends, potentially, here. And then, of course, you know we'll see if there's more utility than, than humor uh, that you can use the AI for. So there's a whole bunch of chips here with new powers uh, that we'll get a sense of. As an iPhone user, I have to read about what the uh, Samsung phone users have at their disposal. It appears they can create custom phone wallpapers on certain phones based on a set of words a user selects. So it'll be exciting to see what capabilities AI gives us to the smartphone. Jill, we were noting yesterday the 27th birthday of the Microsoft StarTech flip phone. We've come a long way. I think the question, though, Mosh, is that for the many Apple iPhone users out there, is this enough? Is is AI on your phone enough to potentially make the change over to Samsung? I see you over on the YouTube shaking your head. Uh <laughs> no, I don't think I'm giving up on Apple. I think I'm totally committed. I think they got me. Jobs got me. Cook is keeping me. And uh, I don't know what it would take, like, what technology it would take for a Samsung phone? That's a good poll, actually. We should do that over on the Instagram today. What would it take if you're not as an iPhone user to get you to convert to a Samsung phone? And Apple tends to be known to not necessarily do things first, but maybe do things better. So the thinking would be, even if the AI is awesome on the Samsung phone, that eventually it would make its way over to Apple. Or more user-friendly, or as uh, you know, Jobs used to say, more beautiful, <laughs> a more beautiful experience. All right, from Variety, NBC taps Snoop Dogg for its primetime Paris Olympics show. Rapper and actor Snoop Dogg will be on hand during the event to provide regular reports for NBC's primetime Olympics program starting on July 26th on both the broadcast network and the Peacock streaming hub. Snoop Dogg will be offering his unique take on what's happening at the athletic extravaganza. 
And he'll also be seen exploring landmarks. <laughs> so so you'll have Snoop on the Seine? Walking around the Louvre. I'm, I'm just picturing what right, yeah, this Snoop means. Snoop and the Mona Lisa. <laughs> yeah, Snoop at the Eiffel. I like it. I'm into it. In a statement, he said, quote, I grew up watching the Olympics and I am thrilled to see the incredible athletes bring their A game to Paris. We're going to have some amazing competitions. And of course, I will be bringing that Snoop style to the mix. It is going to be the most epic Olympics ever. So stay tuned and keep it locked. Snoop Dogg might not seem like the most immediate fit with traditional sports programming, but NBC is testing (laughs) new ideas for its primetime coverage. Listen, they got to find a way uh, to keep people uh, tuned in in primetime because as hard as NBC has tried in recent Olympic Games with the internet, you can't, you know, hold the results anymore. And they've tried that for a number of years and now realize like we just got to stream stuff live. People in 2024 well, uh, you know, news to NBC, people in 2014 were demanding this too. want to watch stuff live, even if you want to hold them till primetime. So they got to come up with ploys to get you to still tune in at night and watch those highlights. Uh, so this is not the first time we've seen Snoop Dogg. This is a much more prominent role for him. Back in 2021 at the Tokyo Games, he teamed up with Kevin Hart to provide commentary over on Peacock. Um, as I promised at the top of the pod, here's one of my favorite clips of Snoop Dogg and Kevin Hart doing equestrian coverage, Jill. I like this. This is equestrian. This they is prancing. This. They prancing. call this equestrian. By the way, look at that horse. Did you? Oh, the horse crip walking, cuz. You see that? <laughs> On the set. <laughs> That's gangsters of up. Hey! Oh, 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 look at this, girl. Oh, come on, man. This horse is off the chain. I got to get this motherfucking a video. Girl. Oh, you see? it's definitely more fun than kind of just like your typical <laughs> play-by-play. Equestrian? Well, especially for equestrian coverage. Like, he's just approaching it as a real person being like, wait, how do the horses dance like this? Like, and he's then, going course, side with to his side. Own unique, yeah, and then, of course, calling it crip walking. So, uh, Snoop having some fun. You might remember uh, Beyond Snoop. They brought Leslie Jones uh, from SNL onto coverage during the Rio games. And her social media coverage has always been a lot of fun to watch during the games. So NBC is promoting these Paris Olympics. They're happening again this summer. And they're going to try to figure out a way to get you to watch at night. So you also watch those commercials on live TV, which they're going to sell a billion dollars worth of. Moshe, I was working for NBC back in 2004 when they had the Athens games. And... It is a huge deal. I feel like we were planning for coverage for months. And the company spends a ton of money to get the rights to the games. They hope that the time zone lines up somewhat so that people are going to be able to watch in real time and prime time. Yeah. And yeah, they want this is one thing people perhaps will be watching live when we know that so many people don't do that anymore. Yeah, Europe's is going to be tough for them. Uh, they tend to like, you know, Western Hemisphere games, right? Uh, aligned uh, with the U.S. clock or Asia, which is about 12 hours ahead. So it's ever in the morning there is evening here and, and vice versa. Um, so they try to line up stuff there. Jill, for those 04 games, I was a uh, lowly NBC sports intern working out of a truck in a parking lot in Athens on boxing coverage where we were lining up highlights going in and out of commercial. A lot of fun also being at those games if you can ever experience it. Well, Moshe, if you had ever called the NBC Foreign Desk, it is possible that we spoke. <laughs> Jill, I was too low to even have rights to call before. Like, they're just like, what time code do you need? I was like, at 122, there was a good uppercut. <laughs> Thank you, kid. The question is, though, which shift were you on? Were you on like an overnight shift or were you potentially on some sort of day shift? 
I didn't know to ask that there were chefs, Jill. <laughs> I work 20 hours a day. <laughs> All right. And finally, from the New York Times, a 13-year-old in Oklahoma is believed to be the first person to ever beat Tetris since that game's release more than three decades ago. Willis Gibson of Stillwater, Oklahoma, has become the first person to advance so far in the original 1989 Nintendo version of the puzzle game Tetris that the game froze. Previously, only bots powered by artificial intelligence had forced that game into its kill screen, as it's called. That's where its signature blocks are falling so fast that the game itself cannot continue. For those who haven't played it by now, is that anybody? Tetris features relentless arrays of shapes floating down a player's screen. The object of the game is to keep the blocks from piling up. It is among the most enduring and celebrated video games ever. Theoretically, the game can go on forever if a player is good enough. For years, though, the limit was thought to be level 29 when the blocks start falling so quickly that it seems as if it would be impossible for a human to keep up. But in the last decade, this new generation of Tetris players has tested those boundaries. Willis got to level 157, reaching Tetris's <laughs> kill screen, which is the point where a video game becomes unplayable because of limitations in its coding. Yeah, so apparently he did this in about 38 minutes. Uh, fun video online of Willis just like in shock of himself. Like, <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe I did this. Um, Jill, he's only 13. Uh, the story says he's been playing competitively since 2021. So since he was about nine or 10, when he was in the fourth grade, he's now in junior high. His Tetris journey started when he said he came across YouTube videos of the game. He began gathering the equipment necessary because this is the OG version. So he needed the original Nintendo, the original game. Uh, he's also playing on a tube television. He says he was attracted to the game because of its simplicity. It's easier to start off. It's really hard to master it, he admits. So he says he plays about 20 hours of Tetris a week. His math teacher uh, was asked about this by a reporter. She says she accepted because he does other stuff uh, and is a really talented kid. Her name is Ms. Cox. So go Ms. Cox for letting Willis beat Tetris. Now, of course, Tetris is available on more modern uh, gaming equipment, but he doesn't say he wants PlayStation 5 or any of the new uh, consoles. He likes the older games. So go Willis going retro and uh, pretty impressive. Apparently, there's a classic Tetris World Championship. That's his next goal. He wants to win there. He plays third in October. Uh, there's going to be another tournament in Waco, Texas coming up. If you're a Tetris fan, head down to Waco. Go check out the Dr. Pepper factory while you're there too. That's one of my favorite things to do in Waco, Texas. Um, and he's made about three grand off of his Tetris prowess. And of course, his name now printed globally. I love that he had to go and find the equipment. It was that old. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have one in our garage somewhere, Willis, if you need a backup Nintendo console. In my parents' garage, I should say. All right. Staying with the retro vibe here, Jill, we go to On This Day in History. On This Day in 1936, the first pop music chart based on national record sales was published by Billboard magazine. The Billboard charts turning 88 years old today. On this day in political history, in 1965, President Lyndon Johnson delivered the State of the Union Address where he outlined his goals for what he called his great society. This would include legislation that would end up passing Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the creation of the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities. Pretty remarkable 
think we've talked about this on the pod before, what LBJ was able to accomplish as president. Of course, he had come from Congress, uh, knew how to get things done there. Really remarkable string of things he was able to do in the mid-60s, of course, all of it overshadowed by the escalating war in Vietnam, uh, which actually forced him uh, to decide in early 68 that he would not be running for re-election as president. He could have had four more years. Totally unrelated. Um, he is the president who used to like leave the door open while he was in the bathroom, right? For meetings and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> LBJ was quite the character, Jill. Not only did he leave the door open, he would demand that his aides would enter the bathroom with him, including the toilet stall. He demanded that phones were installed in all the toilet stalls because if he wanted to get a hold of somebody and was told that they were in the bathroom, that upset him. So he demanded, this is obviously the pre-cell phone era, that phones would be installed Jill, there's more <laughs> stuff we could talk about, including the fact that he would sometimes drop his pants in meetings. This is what? LBJ here, the President of the United States. Jill, we actually have a deep dive on him, so to speak, over on the uh, Mo News Premium account. Do you want to know more about LBJ? Or do you? Over on Mo News Premium Instagram, <laughs> go join over at mo.news slash premium. Clearly, yours truly um, has a little bit of potty humor. <laughs> Jill, uh, you know, uh, you go to these characters in history and you're like, oh, my God, he passed the Civil Rights Act, but he also demanded people <laughs> would enter the toilet stall with him. Lyndon Johnson, everybody. All right. A couple more items here on this day in 1968. Hot Wheels were introduced, the little cars. They were the brainchild of a guy named Elliot Handler, the co-founder of Mattel. He was eager to create these toy cars uh, like the ones he saw on the highway. There was an initial run, included Camaros, Corvettes, and Firebirds. You have that initial run of Hot Wheels. I imagine you could probably get pretty good money for them these days. A little currency news for you on this day in 99 was the first day the euro, Europe's new currency, was traded for the first time. Very hard to get European countries together. Of course, many countries are part of the euro. It was initially uh, thought that they could actually take down the dollar as the biggest currency in the world. Of course, they did not do that. They've had some crises over the years. Uh, but the euro on this day in 1999. On this day in 2010, the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building, still is uh, 14 years later. Opened in Dubai. Jill, it stands at uh, just under 2,800 feet, 828 meters. My favorite fact about the tallest building in the world, for about 3,800 years of human history, the Great Pyramid of Egypt was the tallest building in the world. It stood for nearly 4,000 years. Um, and that was until the 1300s when there was a cathedral built in England. Uh, and then everything goes berserk in the 20th century as skyscrapers are created. And now they're basically just doing it based on spire. Like they're just putting like, a, <laughs> we're going to raise that spire by one foot. And now we have the tallest building. Yeah, that's actually like pretty controversial. The antennas and spires <laughs> at the top of buildings because some people are like, well, no, we have the largest, the tallest habitable floor of a building. People are like, we just stuck a bunch of stuff up on top of the building and now we have the taller building. Fun fact about Burj Khalifa, folks, in Dubai. It was initially supposed to be called Burj Dubai. Why did it get the name Burj Khalifa? Well, Dubai was experiencing a debt crisis and had run out of money. And the cousin of the Sheikh of Dubai, over in nearby an hour away, Abu Dhabi, another emirate, I needed to bail him out. Well, the theory is that cousin Khalifa over in Abu Dhabi said, I bail you out, you put my name on the building. So Burj Dubai was what we thought was going to be Burj Dubai. I remember covering this for Bloomberg TV. They're like, it's called Burj Khalifa. We're like, where did that happen? Well, something happened behind the scenes there. So just FYI, if you have to bail out, your friend slash family member with tens of billions of dollars, demand something for it, like your name on the top of the tallest building. 
All right, a little music history before we go here. The Doors, the classic band, released their debut studio album on this day in 1967. Uh, you might know Break On Through to the Other Side uh, among the hits on that album with a young 23-year-old Jim Morrison. Sadly, uh, we would lose Jim Morrison just four years later. And one other classic musical headline for you 41 years ago today. The Eurythmics released their uh, second album, Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, with that hit song. And up until this moment, I thought it was Sweet Dreams Are Made of These. I guess I <laughs> I guess I was mishearing it. Jill, I got to be honest with you. I thought so, too, because <laughs> then the next line is, I traveled the world in the seven seas. Correct. It all rhymes. So you would think these <laughs> rhymes with seas, and yet it's this. So... I learn, you know, you learn so much on this podcast every day, and this is this is really important. So you can correct someone at the dinner table tonight. All right, and now a sweet goodbye. We want to thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And review us in the App Store. Who am I to disagree? <laughs> there you go, Jill. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.